My colleague, Eamon Ismail, has always felt different, all his life. Even though he grew up in Newark, New Jersey, playing basketball and mixing it up with the other first-generation American kids in his neighborhood, he felt different. And it's because his Muslim community told him he was different and told him to be confident in his difference. It was like stupid stuff, like, well, you guys are Muslim, so therefore you do not drink alcohol. You don't eat pork, and you don't curse, and that you respect your parents, and you you're don't date, uh, and then have sex, and then get married. You, you get married first. For us, it was very much, you're Muslim, you live life this way, and that's very different than anybody else that you're going to meet out there. Eamon is a staff writer at Slate Magazine. I love it when he tells stories about his parents. They've popped up in his journalism from time to time. His folks came to the States from Egypt. They worked really hard, raised four kids, sent them all to a private school that would teach the kids Arabic and make them study the Quran. The school I went to was called Al-Ghazali. It's this private Muslim Islamic school out in the middle of the hood in Jersey City. In a lot of ways, it was like this insular, separate community from the rest of like civil society at that time. You know, uh, we, we did everything there from learning to read the Quran to, you know, like we had like a basketball league between all the other Islamic schools. We also had like a karate league. I got first place. I'm not showing off. I'm just saying it's true. And I, we also had like camping and we had like Islamic Boy Scouts I mean, financially, it made no sense to send any of us there. You know, my dad worked as a driver in New York City. My mom actually had to take a, a job at that school to be an Arabic teacher just so that she can get us the discount, you know. And still, it was like a struggle. It was a struggle. But that's just, I, I think, in my parents' mind, all worth it to raise Muslim kids in America. So was your family expecting you to graduate from that school? Yeah, yeah. Um, my whole family, all, all of us, all the siblings were all expected to graduate from that school. But, but I didn't. My last day there was September 11th. The day of the 9-11 attacks, Eamon was 11 years old. He remembers being evacuated from his school building, getting into a school bus, going down a highway, seeing the smoke from the Twin Towers. He remembers going home, waiting to hear from his dad, who spent his days driving people around in lower Manhattan. He remembers watching the news on TV. We're watching, I don't remember what, it might have been ABC or something. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. And they, they were streaming from the street. They, were, they had live shots of people running from the debris and these huge clouds of smoke chasing people. And me being glued to the TV set, looking for my dad, I'm trying to find him. And it wasn't until the, the next day, like a full 24 hours later, that my dad did eventually walk through the door. He walked from New York, which is crazy to think about. After that, Eamon's school didn't reopen right away. There was a fear that it would be unsafe, a target for anti-Muslim sentiment in the wake of the attacks. So Eamon's parents gave him an option. 
to start going to his local public school in Newark. And Eamon took it. And he never set foot in his Muslim school again. Never. Not for anything. What was the discussion about that? I mean, it's it's hard to say because my parents never sat me down and gave us like a 9-11 talk. Like that never happened. But I could tell that they were thinking, this school is going to be closed. The nature of going to a Muslim school in this country is going to be different. What are we willing to roll the dice on? People talk about the U.S. losing a sense of stability on 9-11. What did you lose as a kid, as a, as a Muslim American? What did I lose on 9-11? I mean, everything. Everything. Um, no, seriously, like everything. The Muslim community that I was a part of, it was a community that I'd been part of since I was born. And I would never see almost any of them ever again. Because I'm not the only one who left. So I would say the community never fully recovered from 9-11 in that sense, where there was this huge earthquake beneath the ground that just pushed everybody out. Today on the show, the flip side of the war on terror and how it shook the life of one Ayman Ismail, a Muslim, an Arab American, a kid. I'm Mary Wilson, in for Mary Harris. This is What Next. Keep listening. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You have written about listening to President George W. Bush in the weeks after 9-11, and he made these speeches ensuring the country that, you know, the war against terrorism is not a war against Muslims, nor is it a war against Arabs. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. I mean, you were just a kid, but do you remember hearing those words at the time? And did they give you any kind of solace? Yeah, they did. Yeah, I remember those words very clearly. I mean, when he gave that speech from an Islamic center just days after 9-11, my parents, particularly my dad, talked about how relieved he felt. And he thought that we had just uh, averted a whole disaster of a, of a cultural phenomena. He, he was incredibly relieved, and that gave me relief as his son. It's just that uh, that was before we knew about the Patriot Act and this idea of like the war on terror. And so our community felt great about those comments. But then when the Patriot Act came out, we were like, oh, man, this is going to change everything. The Patriot Act passed within a couple months of the attacks on 9-11. It was meant to allow U.S. intelligence agencies to share information to prevent future acts of terrorism. But the law also made it easier for the government to surveil American citizens. And it relaxed the rules around federal law enforcement searching people's homes. A year after 9-11, this was like 2002, and like a whole squad of FBI 
showed up to our door in Newark, New Jersey with guns drawn and flashlights in the middle of the night at like 4 a.m. My mother was already awake because it was like the dawn prayer time. This is the time that Muslims pray before the sun comes up. And so they must know, this must be part of like their, their handbook, where if, like if someone's an immigrant, they're going to pretend like they're on your side and they're just going to ask for permission very politely. Can we come inside? Because they know they don't have a warrant. And so my mom saw the guns. She saw the flashlights. She saw the, the jackets with FBI written on them. And she was like, yeah, we have nothing to hide. Come on in. And as soon as she said that, they like rush past her and they start just like tearing the place apart. Did you ever find out why they were there? I don't know. They, they, they told my mom that they were looking for someone named Muhammad Muhammad, which is like the most common name in the world. So like even to us, it's like cartoonish. Like, does this person exist? Who knows? But no, obviously they're not going to find someone like that, especially if they're digging through like children's clothes and like taking my toys and dumping the box and going through the, the, the kitchen drawers. Like they went through everything. And then when they were done, they left. They didn't really say anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little kid. I'm 12 at this point. I'm waking up in the middle of the night and people are shuffling through my room that I have no idea with guns. What am I supposed to think? How am I supposed to feel? Like you tell me. I don't know. If that had happened to me, I would just be, I would go through my next year with like a cloud over me. Like someone can come into my house at any time and I'm a suspect in something. That would be very destabilizing. How did your parents go forward after that? You know, and I think a lot of parents can relate to this. They they must have hit it very well because they thought they had to. Like my, my parents were very good at trying to protect us from fear and like, and all of those like bad feelings. So um, my dad was at least in that moment in front of us kids being like the overly cooperative person and being like, look kids, we have nothing to hide. Let's help these people find whatever they're looking for. They, they're good people. Cops are here to protect us. And I remember very distinctly in that moment, my mom comforting us and kind of like putting her arms around us while they were going through the rest of the house and telling us um, that this is like a good thing and they're just trying to keep us safe. Did anybody in your family try to insist on getting an explanation for why this happened or, or even in years after, try to figure out or bring it up, you know, just to talk about it? Like, why did that happen to us? No, I don't think so. Um I don't think so. I mean, you got to remember, like, this is like one of many different kinds of experiences. So like it happens so regularly. It, it also happened to people that we knew where it just felt like it was part of the course and part of like the American experience. Right. Uh, and so we just wanted to move past it. I wanted to move past it. And, and at a certain point, I, I almost thought it was cool, you know, like years later, like bringing it up to my friends and being like, oh yeah, you know what? My family's more badass. Look at what the cops did to us. I know it sounds stupid and silly, but I'm a, I'm a teen. I'm a little kid at that, at that point. So mm-hmm. I'm just being real. The, the hardest part, I think, the hardest part was knowing as a, as a young kid that you can't trust the cops for anything and that you never call the cops for anything because as Muslims, they're going to assume that we're perpetrators and we're dangerous regardless of what's true so you know every time that i was like 
in something, in some kind of situation where I needed to call the cops. I never would. And I don't know any other Muslims that would either at that time. You know, there's a there's a ton of journalism. There's a ton of documentation about how mosque leaders felt their they had to change after 9-11. They had to do more outreach to the non-Muslim community around them. Did you see that at your family's mosque? Oh, my God, yeah. In, in, in like a very physical way afterwards. The mosque that I went to, Ghazali, they would do interfaith programming. They would ask some of the students at the school like to go to the synagogue or the local church, like just to meet other students to do like photo ops and like that kind of thing. And do outreach and like teach them about Islam and learn about Judaism and Christianity. And so they were very interested in like proving to the rest of the society that we were just like them and just as willing to to build bridges and, and to like build a better society. Just after 9-11, they had brought a, a huge box of tiny little American flags to hand out to everybody. I think the mosque was aware that some people might be afraid to be the only ones not showing their, their patriotism or how it would look if we were the mosque that didn't have a flag. That's how I thought it was. I thought it was like a self-defense thing. I, I don't know if like the guy who brought the, the box was like, yeah, go America. I don't know. It's possible. But in, in my mind, uh, having experienced everything that day and the day after and all that, I, was, I just knew that this was like a, a little bit self-defense. What was the fear that would be articulated in the mosque? The the fear was we have to protect ourselves and, and specifically Muslim women who wore hijab because they were disproportionately being like harassed and, and being like physically assaulted in the streets. So there was um, there was this moment where the imam was like, look, if you don't want to like wear the hijab, that's totally fine. Like we understand, come see us and we'll like talk you through that or anything. Uh, and so I know a lot of women who stopped wearing hijab after that moment. But so, uh, there were, I knew also women who wore it even harder and wore like the more aggressive kind because they wanted to, to, to basically make their stamp and make it known that they weren't afraid of being harassed. You know, so everybody was processing it in their own way. But I think the mosque was mostly worried about women who were vulnerable to hate crimes. And it happened on the mosque property. There was one woman who was going into her car in the parking lot and uh, a gang of people basically crept up behind her and punched her in the back of the head, you know, and then ran off like cowards. And, you know, we all knew people that, that had had like their cars smashed or people throwing stuff at us. And even the mosque itself, like several times had like bomb threats phoned in. How did it change the way you practice your faith? And that's a big question, right? I mean, especially since I don't know what life is like as like an American teen who not outside of line 11, you know, like, I don't know what that's like. So for me, I almost, I almost wonder how different it would be too. And one of the things that I think is a consequence of nine 11 was that it, it gave every pundit and every politician license to talk about Islam and Muslims as like this theoretical thing. Right, they can talk about Islam without actually talking to Muslims, 
And it wasn't until years later, so many years later, Mary, where people were finally bringing Muslims to talk on their programs about Islam. So for that whole period after 9-11, where Pamela Geller and uh, Ayan Hirsli Ali and all of these like anti-Muslim activists, they just had free reign to make their case, basically, that Islam and America are at war with each other and that if we accept Muslims as regular Americans, we're signing our death warrant. And so I'm now, as a Muslim, I can't just respond to my faith ordinarily. I need to first respond to how people will respond to me as a Muslim before I can even get to how do I feel about this one verse or that verse. And doubly so for Muslim women who wear hijab, who they, they're not just responding to their faith anymore when they're when they're wearing a headscarf. Now they're also responding to the ways that people observe their practice and what people might assume about them because of what they're wearing. You know, it's like a lot of work to get to the baseline where you can start responding to something on a spiritual level because of how politically charged everything you do as a Muslim is in this country. You know, what's interesting is you refer to pundits a lot and not just in this conversation, in your work. You've interviewed many journalists. Um, and, you know, I rarely think about pundits. To me, they're highly ignorable, <laughs> very mm. easy to ignore. And it's occurring to me that that's a privilege because usually the pundits are not talking about me and they're not talking about my community. Yeah. So I get to ignore them. And you probably felt like, you had to keep tabs on what they were saying about you. I mean, how many people do you think watch Tucker Carlson tonight? I have no idea. Millions. Yeah, over 4 million every night. He has that many people watching. And, you know, he's conditioning these people to feel a certain way about me and my mom and my kid and everybody that I know in my community. So that matters. And that means something because... On a regular basis, I interact with the people who watch that show. You know, um, I was at the January 6th Capitol riot. Mm -hmm. Not as a participant, I swear. I was there as a journalist. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, there was one family that were there. They, they were from Greece, actually. And um, I, like, approached them because they were doing, like, a Mediterranean dance that was, like, familiar to me because my family's from Egypt. It almost looked like a depka. And so I was like, oh, what's their deal? So I, I started a conversation with them. And I told them that looks like a familiar dance to me. And they basically engaged me with my identity because of that. And they asked me if I was Muslim. I said, yeah. And the response I got was, well, could, something we don't really understand. Could you please explain this to us? I said, sure. They said, why were you celebrating after 9-11? And I was like, hmm, where did you hear that? And they were like, well, it happened. Like Trump talked about it and uh, Tucker Carlson said that it was true. And Sean Hannity had like video. And I was like, hmm, okay. I was in Jersey City during that time. Uh, my whole family had tears in our eyes because we thought our father had died. And I could tell you for a fact that nobody in our community were celebrating. In fact, Many people from our community had family who were first responders. And they, we weren't clapping. We were looking for places to donate blood. 
we weren't cheering. We were too busy trying to see how we can help our community that was being under attack. And this is just a side of the story that they've never even once considered because they've been conditioned to think of the Muslim community as this organism that is feeding off of their society. So it matters to me because I need to know how to argue against those points that are being made on this show because that's part of my lived reality as an American Muslim. We're going to take a quick break. More with Eamon Ismail in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In the years after 9-11, you went to high school and then college and you started a career in journalism. And in those years, you also... (laughs) You also kind of had a rebellious phase. You you write about, you know, being really interested in pop culture and kind of a more secular life. I'm thinking of the photography you did earlier in your career. It has this kind of rogue feel to it. You even got arrested for trespassing in the course of one photography shoot, I think. Yeah. It, you know, it just has all the hallmarks of a rebellious phase guided in part by youth, but perhaps by something else. And... I was just curious why you felt safe enough to rebel. So going to a private school and then going to a public school, all of that really had an effect on me, obviously, right? I, I couldn't just be a kid in your class. I needed to also like be ready to like argue with the tenets of Islam <laughs> because so many people had like crazy ideas of what they were. And so like you, you had like 11, 12-year-olds being like, amen, what is jihad? And like, why does your family want to kill my family? Like questions like that. And you, you sort of need to be like ready to, to, to answer those things. It's a lot of responsibility. So all of that responsibility at a certain point gets really, really, really heavy. And uh, when I got to college and I was just like surrounded by all these really interesting opportunities to do all these new things that I've never tried before, I just wanted to dump all that weight off my back and just dive into something new. And not be the Muslim ambassador anymore? Yeah, I was tired of it. I just couldn't care less at that point about being your Muslim. So, yeah, I mean, and, and with that came like a taste of a new life. And, and I just kind of dove headfirst in. Like I, I was never really great with the, the keeping up on the daily prayers 
at that point I had just like just given up. I was like, I don't, I don't even, wasn't even thinking about it anymore. I was just thinking about what's the coolest thing I could do today. And how do I get like a really cool photo that nobody else has ever gotten before? Uh, and, and I really got into like graffiti culture. It's really hard if you grow up in the tri-state to not get into graffiti. But this was my moment where I was like, I had the coolest camera. I was able to like skate so I could keep up with these kids and like go to places where most other people like only see after the fact. And I was going to the city every night and uh, I met all these like really awesome graffiti writers that I had to look up to. And so I just got like thrust into this like really crazy, like illicit underground culture. And I loved every second of it. Like I was obsessed. I thought that like graffiti and photography gave you the keys to the city. But grabbing the keys to the city was more dangerous for Eamon. He was breaking the rules, for sure, but he was singled out for harsher scrutiny. He remembers one story he did that landed him in especially hot water. There was like this moment that uh, the, the photography scene in New York was having where everybody was taking these really beautiful, breathtaking pictures from the tops of these bridges. And so I really wanted to do that. And when I found an opportunity to do so, I was a journalist working at this like graffiti culture magazine called Animal New York. So I had met this kid who climbs bridges and I was like, yo, let me just shadow you for a night. Show me how to climb this bridge. I'll go with you and we'll like take pictures and we'll do an interview along the way. He was like, bet, come through. And it was amazing. And so that, that was that. Like I climbed down, published the pictures, wrote the story. It was like quoted in a whole bunch of other articles. The New York Times linked to it. It was like a big deal for me as a journalist. But then months later, like this happened in November and then like March next year, a bunch of detectives showed up to my apartment. I wasn't there, but my, my roommate called me in a panic being like, yo, amen, there's like four detectives here. They like, they wanna ask you questions. I'm like, okay, that's weird. But like my whole life experience told me that for Muslims, this is normal. So at that time I was just trying to calm my, my roommate down being like, yo, I'll be back soon. Don't worry about it. I called the number that the, that the detective left gave it to a lawyer, talked to a lawyer. A lawyer was like, there's no way around it. You gotta, they're mad. You gotta, you gotta turn yourself in. So I do. Uh, I turned myself in that, that same night. But then they start asking me questions about like what mosque I pray at. And like, if I know such and such person with like a Muslim name or am I involved in whatever organization? And I'm thinking to myself like, okay, um, they just like really interested in the Muslim part of this, whatever is going on. And for people who don't know, trespassing is a misdemeanor. So even if they had caught me in the act, they would have written me a ticket and given me a summons, right? I would show up to the court date. In this case, they had slapped cuffs on me and they wanted to hold me overnight. And I was like, whatever, one night, maybe it's because I turned myself in at night. No, it ended up being a 36-hour ordeal where they had kept wow. me in the tombs. The downtown jail. And it's awful by every account. Yeah, it's not fun. Uh, but what, what was special about that experience was that when I walk in, everybody has eyes on me and I'm like, I, I walk in, they take the cuffs off, I go in the cell and I'm like, assalamu alaikum. There's like the Muslim greeting and everybody in the cell goes, wa alaikum assalam. Like everybody there was Muslim. I was like, this is weird, but like a huge relief, <laughs> you know? It's like you walk into the cheers bar. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, everybody, everybody there was my brother in Islam, which was cool. Not cool because of like how we all ended up there, but cool in the sense where I, I wasn't like scared anymore. How did the arrest get resolved? So here's what happened. 
after asking me all these questions and then like asking me if they, they one of them bluntly asked me if I knew about any terrorist threat that was coming up. An officer asked you. A detective, right. A plainclothes detective without a lawyer present, by the way. And I'm like, listen, I live in the city. I have a job in the city. My family's here. If I knew about anything, I would say something. So then after 36 hours, I get to finally see a judge. And the judge goes, if you get in trouble like this again, we're going to deport you. And I was like, deport me? And, and I don't know if people who haven't been arraigned, you don't know this, but you can't talk. It's not like law and order where you have like a representation and you can like, it's not a trial, right? So I'm still cuffed and you can't talk. And the judge just has their fact sheet and they're supposed to make a ruling in like 30 seconds. Everything on that fact sheet was a lie. They told them that I resisted arrest and that I was making instructions for people on how to climb bridges, which sounds crazy, right? Especially if the person has a Muslim name. Now it sounds like like something crazy. And then I find out later that it wasn't just the NYPD, the FBI. I don't know about the FBI. It was a Homeland Security, Port Authority, and the NYPD all had interest in this case. And they, I needed to take thumbprints for everybody because I was going into everybody's database. And uh, there was like a news story about it later uh, on ABC. And they had interviewed a bomb expert, like a terrorism expert, who made the case saying that if I wanted to, I, I could have gone up there and blown the bridge up. That's, but see, that whole story, that's like the perfect example of something that, you know, I would never climb on top of a bridge to take a picture, which perhaps hurts my journalism. <laughs> but it also... Like, I'm just, I'm kind of stunned that you, after so many, after so much reason to think that the government would f*** you up <laughs> if they caught you doing something, anything remotely wrong, I'm surprised you did it. Like, I, I don't understand that impulse. It strikes me as, like, there's something going on there. Like, Yeah, yeah. Do you understand that impulse? Yeah, I mean, and it's a push and pull, and every day it's different, right? And and this happens to any Muslim, and, and they'll tell you this too, that sometimes you forget that you are like some sort of pariah to the community because you don't see yourself as a pariah. And, you know, Muslims, especially in the tri-state, do so much charity work. They do so much good for the community. And when you talk to normal people who know us, they love us. And it's not a big deal. So you sometimes forget that there are bad cops out there and bad judges and and bad COs who want to abuse you because they might, you know, have their own personal beef or who knows what's in their heart. But like you, you sometimes forget. And I was so wrapped up into this like photographer community where the people who knew me had no problem with me. So I could sometimes forget that I'm like this dangerous person or I'm supposed to be. Like my dad said right after he he called me an idiot. He was like, how could you let them catch you? Like, why would you think for a second that this wasn't going to happen to you? And I was like, you're right, Bubba. Like, this is, it, it was my fault in the sense where I forgot. I, I let my guard down. talk to you about how your family responded to the post 9-11 years. Did, did they struggle with these years and question U.S. government actions the way you seem to have done? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. 
Uh, I don't think any of us got out of it unscathed. Um, my sister has a worse experience than I do. Uh, it happened to her when she was trying to go to Israel as part of like a school trip at, when she was at Harvard Law School. And they they really messed with her out there. I feel really bad about what they did to her. They they like borderline tortured her uh, by like refusing to feed her and like gave her only milk with tea with milk for like the, the several days that they held her. Who held her? The Israeli Defense Forces because she wore a headscarf at the airport. That's basically what happened. American citizen, American passport. But even she came back and she was like, I forgot that I'm a Muslim woman <laughs> and that how how could I have thought that I was going to just go on this school trip? <laughs> um, but I mean, we, we all tend to like live our lives as best as we can and do as much as we can. And then something happens where we're like brought down to earth, where we're reminded that we're just not ever going to be accepted as innocent by these like government agencies. We are inflicted with this like weight where we we have to carry this around now this like trauma but at the same time in order to survive and move past it we have to just like manage and make do because we can't just sit around and, and think about how how life sucks for us as muslims that's just we're not going to get anywhere i don't know we, we all handle it in our way, own ways my parents are just at this point they're still just like good people. They're just so grateful to be in America. They love it here. They love the lives that they've made here. They love the the lives that their kids have made here. And I don't know any Muslim parents that really like resent the government or anything like that. They're all just happy to be here. Yeah, it's kind of an immigrant family cliche at this point that a lot of times the the parents who immigrate are really happy to be here, you know, like big time Ringo attitude, like just happy to be in the band. <laughs> you know, like quite patriotic about their adopted country. And then you, it's the first-generation American kids you see, these first-gen kids who view the U.S. through more skeptical eyes. It sounds like that's true in your family, too. Yeah, and, and I think the reason why is because their mission was to plant roots here and to grow a family here. And by that measure, they've succeeded, right? They No matter what anybody says about them on TV, that doesn't change the fact that they have a family here. Uh, but for us, for 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 me and my siblings, and for people who were born here, that's not our goal. We're, we're already here, so we're thirsting for something more. We want acceptance. We want truth. We want people to see through the bullshit in, in another way. You know, we want to help people who hate us to learn who we are. So we're doing this for y'all. You know what I mean? We we know that we're not terrorists. Eamon Ismail, thank you so much for talking. Thanks, Mary. Eamon Ismail is a staff writer at Slate Magazine. For The Curious, look up his old video series. It's called Who's Afraid of Eamon Ismail? You can find it on YouTube. That's the show. What Next is produced by your heroes and mine, Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, Danielle Hewitt, and Carmel Del Shad. Special thanks to Ethan Brooks for helping us out this week. Allison Benedict is Slate's executive editor, and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. 
tomorrow in the feed, What Next TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. She'll be talking about the Colorado River and the water crisis out west with Abram Lustgarten. I'm Mary Wilson, in for Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.